You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Radiotherapy. And what a show we've got lined up for you today. He's just screaming into the microphone. Well, we've got some of the brightest minds in medicine and health crammed into the studio. There's going to be more degrees in here than on a hot summer's day. We're talking lots and lots of smarty pants. Now, first up, we'll be speaking with Dr. Moto, one of the busiest psychiatrists in town. He gets around town on his 1200cc two-wheeler. Now, this is one hip dude, and he's doing his PhD on magnets... And the brain. Yep. You may have heard of transcranial magnetic stimulation. It's the latest trend in the treatment for a range of psychiatric disorders. And our biker friend will be telling us all about it. And a big welcome back to the show to Dr. Spock. Now, mention Spock's name to anyone involved in child health. Spock is a pseudonym, by the way. Mention Spock's name to anybody involved in child health and you'll get the knowing nod of approval. And there's whole suburbs of doctor who doctors who have Spock's name on speed dial for when they need advice about their own kids, mine included. He's one of those doctors who knows everything there is to know about his field. And because his field is infectious diseases, that pretty much covers all of medicine. Today, Spock will be chatting with us about a really interesting phenomenon, voluntourism. Voluntourism. I hadn't heard of it before. It's a big thing, and Spock is going to be looking at it from all the angles. And what would Sunday mornings be without Dr. G-Spot? She's a clinical and research psychologist and NHMRC fellow, i.e. really smart. G-Spot will be joining us on the panel for the latest in research news and she'll also be joined with she'll also be joined by joined with joined by and sitting next to her is uh neonatal who'll also be filling us in on some of the latest news in uh, the medical world as well all this intelligence and music it's the university of the thinking age Cantus maximus so stick with us for the next hour of radiotherapy doctor doctor give me the news i gotta Good morning, Dr. G-Spot. Good morning, Dr. Malpractice. Always a pleasure to be here. Oh, it's, it's not a good morning for me. I'm stuffing up left, right and centre, but we'll see if we can get it right for Things the Things can only day. get better. Can't they? they really can. Song in that. Now, um, <laughs> sitting next to you is Neonatal. Neonatal? Good yes. A, g'day. G'day. Now, um, just tell us a bit about who you are. Uh, I'm the newest member of this uh, <laughs> this week of radiotherapy. Um, I'm a medical student. Yeah, and you're the future of radio there. Oh, like, let's see. I keep telling you that. Now you have, uh, you were just talking with us in the um, the green room about an interesting coupling of two organisations. Yeah, exactly. It's the uh, Dry July Foundation and Australia's uh, biggest alcohol retailer, BWS. So at the start of uh, July, they uh, announced a partnership. And the move drew some pretty widespread criticism from mm-hmm. groups such as the Foundation for Alcohol Research and Education mm-hmm. and the Public Health Association of Australia, mm-hmm. who were concerned about the mixed messages being sent to the Australian public. Mm-hmm. There's a very well-proven link between alcohol consumption and cancers of the mouth, pharynx, larynx, esophagus, stomach, bowel, mm-hmm. liver and breast. 
mm-hmm. and thousands of deaths each year in Australia can be attributed to excessive alcohol consumption. Mm-hmm. And the Dry July Foundation raises money for uh, cancer research. Did you know that uh, Dr Doolittle and I hosted the Dry July night at one of the the major teaching hospitals in Melbourne for about uh, three or four years. It was the best fun and lots and lots of support from the staff there. It was really great. Mm. Yeah, it's a really, really great foundation, yeah. but um, it's a bit of a surprising partnership. Uh, so BW has put out a statement at the start of the month saying that they're promoting their low and alcohol-free drinks throughout the month of July. But the, uh, the chief executive of the Foundation for Alcohol Research and Education, Michael Thorne, claims that it was simply another marketing ploy to increase brand recognition of alcohol and recruit new drinkers. Mm-hmm. So if we look at a bit of statistics, mm-hmm. on average, Australians are drinking nine litres of pure alcohol every year as of 2014. So what's pure? pure how, how would we translate That's that a, to like beer or...? So it's 100% ethanol, so if... Uh, oh, I see. So if you divide it by 10, that would be about the average yeah. bottle of wine type of thing, right? Yeah. Exactly. And this is compared to just four litres back in 1935, with a 2018 study showing that if we cut our alcohol consumption by 33%, and it's dropped down to six litres of pure alcohol, uh, cancer rates in adults could drop by roughly 12% over the next 12 years, equating to roughly 55,000 cancer deaths prevented each year. So these statistics are why the public health officials are so concerned about the partnership. Uh, I get you. So there is a relationship between drinking a lot and all these cancers what they're saying if we can get australians to drink less i didn't i see something about a beer tax yesterday in the paper did anybody see that i didn't doctor malpractice i was just actually going to say not only are these sort of uh, these cancer links but also like psychosocial issues like links mm. with domestic violence and, mm. and things mm. like that so it's not only you know physical health there's all these other impacts too that alcohol is um associated with yeah exactly so if i was to take a contrarian side and mm. say well hang on if all this money's coming in isn't that a good thing to be using this money for for good no matter where it comes from well it depends uh really how you view the situation whether the money is uh being put towards the same benefit as the amount of new drinkers that they're recruiting ah i see so where's where do you kind of weigh that up I guess you could say, look, if you donate the money anonymously, that's mm. cool, but mm. you can't use it for advertising because, yeah. ah, I see what you're getting at there. Yeah, interesting phenomenon. Um, so what's going to happen with this wash-up? Are uh, uh, BWS still um, uh, in partnership or are they...? Yeah, yeah, they, par- they partnered the whole month. If you walked into any BWS store wow. during the month, you could see a big dry mm. July stall with all of their zero and low alcohol products. And dry, um, dry July have, have given their argument as to why that's, that's cool? Uh, they stayed pretty quiet on the whole issue, I think. Okay, okay. Interesting. No, we should have. We used to have, back in the day, um, a, uh, a segment on the show called Ethic Point. Mm. We would take an issue like this and we would discuss it from all ethical point of views, from distributive justice to non-malfeasance, beneficence, mm. <clears throat> autonomy, conflict of interest, and try and tease it apart because, I mean, whilst I guess to you, to us in the studio, the, the issues are pretty clear... Maybe somebody else has got a different perspective, which which might shine a light on it. Because I think a lot of these things, um, you, you can have lots of different points of views. Yeah, of course. Like. Yeah, and you make a good point with autonomy, where everyone has the the right to choose. Yeah, in a free market, everyone mm. has the right to choose. Um, let's welcome to the studio, uh, Professor Felicity Baker. Felicity, thanks so much for coming. And you you've actually been on the show before, and you have spoken to us about some of your research. And uh, you've got a great study going at the moment. Tell us about that. Yes, well, thank you for having me back. Yes, we've got a new study that has been funded by the National Health and Medical Research Council in collaboration with five other countries in Europe. Huge study, uh, a music and reading study for people living with dementia at home, uh, particularly targeting their um, family carers. So our project is really designed to show carers how they can use reading and music in a very strategic way to help uh, sort of maintain the relationship or um, and help the person living yep. with dementia yep. to, uh, I guess, come out of themselves a little bit and, and, and uh, manage their, their symptoms such as agitation and wandering and distress. So how do you do that? I mean, how do you tell us practically if I call you up and say, hey, I'm looking after somebody who has dementia, I'm caring for them at home. Um, how, can, how can you help me with that? 
Well, what we do is we co- we come to the home. They don't yep. have to go anywhere. And we show our carers different ways of using reading and different ways of using music to match the the presentation of the person they're caring for at that moment. So let's just take an example. Um, let's say the, the family carer is about to shower them and mm-hmm. showering is distressing. They have to get undressed. It's cold uh, and they can get confused. They don't want to go. We can show them how they can choose music that... Um, will match that distress level that the person living with dementia is displaying and then um, use that to, um, I guess, capture their attention and distract them but then also uh, change the way they use the music to then calm them down so they can get through that experience. Oh, that sounds fantastic. And there's more to this as well, I would imagine, because music is a shared experience. So I guess carer and the person being cared for can share something when when often in dementia a lot of that kind of connection gets lost. Correct. And so um, let's just take music as one example. So we know that music stimulates autobiographical recall as people listen to music. They remember things about um, you know when they were young or what they might have been doing with their with their child if it's a child um, carer or their spouse if it's a spousal carer. And what ends up happening is that for the person living with dementia who's got difficulty with ongoing memory or laying down new memories, then they can stimulate this recall of older memories and then they, they kind of come out of themselves. They, they come alive and they start to talk with the person there who's caring for them so that, so that they're giving something back to the person caring for them and they're maintaining this relationship, this import, the importance of the intimacy of the relationship through the medium of music or through the medium of reading. So I guess one of the outcomes of this study would be looking at carer burnout and trying to prevent that. Absolutely. So we're, we're capturing uh, a lot of measures on the person living with dementia but also on the carer and we're even collecting uh, health economics data to look at the impact on um, hospital visits, the amount of medication they're using, um, yeah, and anything related to the carer well-being and the person living with dementia's well-being. Mm-hmm. And you, you, say, you said that it, this is a multi-site study, a sort of multi, lots of countries involved. Yep. Yep. That's pretty exciting. I mean, what are the benefits? And I mean, I can see some benefits, but from your point of view, what are the benefits of having lots of different countries involved? Well, we're able to look at how these interventions can be applied in different cultural contexts. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, of course, our, our long-term plan is to go bigger than that. Our long-term plan is to, is to translate it into some kind of... Um, uh, e-delivery mode um, but also a kind of a train-the-trainer mode because if we go to countries, uh, third world countries that have no IT infrastructure or no access to experts who can come and train these um, carers, we can train a, like a community worker how to use this that they can then go on to train mm-hmm. um, the family carers and we know that in, in some more... Um, uh, in lower socioeconomic countries that access to professional services is already uh, more difficult. So training family carers to do things like this is, is really important to uh, yeah. for everybody, for their whole community. Yeah. Mm. So uh, how do people contact you and get on to this study? Great, yeah. That's um, So we really want to call... Sorry, just before yeah. we do that, um, just to, t- to say what kinds of people we would like to call. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're looking at um, anybody who is caring for somebody living with dementia at home. So it's not a next-door neighbour or someone you, you, you might go and see in the morning or in the evening, but they have to be living together. Uh, and it could be a, a spouse or a partner. It could be an adult child. It could be a sibling. It could be a good friend. But as long as they're living together and that that person is the is the primary caregiver of the person living with dementia. And so if um, we'd really love to hear from you if you could... Um, could make contact with us because we're about to start recruiting for this study right now. I mean, maybe you could ring and be the first person to enrol in our study. So this is you're actually giving people something. You're we're not giving you something. Taking away, you're giving people something. Agreed. Yeah. How can yeah? It's only benefits yeah, yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. Come on. And they ask. don't have to go anywhere. We come to you in your home. Well, that's great. Oh, can't ask for better. Yes. Uh, so if you could perhaps make contact with us if you want to call on the phone, I'll give the number. Sure. It's eight three. Now here's a lot of fours. I'll start again. Eight three. Four, 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 nine. Is that four? Did I say five fours? Five fours. Oh, there were five fours there. I'll do it again. Eight, three, five fours, nine. Yes, eight, three, four, 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 nine. Yeah. Um, we also have an email, and it's called homeside, H O M E S I D E dash 
Australia. Right. So probably, uh, what about people just Google Homeside? Would that be... Oh, I've uh, tried to do that this morning. Does it's, it work? It, there's some um, National Australia Bank thing called Homeside oh, as well. Oh, yeah. Okay, not to be confused. Uh, with uh, Homeside, <laughs> University of Melbourne music No, step. no. But that doesn't maybe, work either? No, but if, if you want to um, find me on the University of Melbourne website, Felicity Baker, you'll find me and then yeah. you could email me directly. Okay, good so idea, good idea. Yeah. <laughs> no Googling of Homeside, people. Just go straight to Felicity <laughs> or call the number. Felicity Baker, thank you so much for coming. It sounds like a, a really brilliant study. Uh, thank you for having me. And you've got to come on in, what, a year or so's time and tell us some of the interim results? Absolutely. Fantastic. Can't wait. Mm, great. Thanks very much. Cheers. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Joining me, Dr Mel, practice in the studio are... Neonatal. There's no doctor in front of neonatal. No, there's you're, not, unfortunately. You're, you're about to be at some point in the future a doctor. Yeah. Hopefully. In a year and a bit. You're in a half. Okay. Almost. Um, and doctor, almost to be professor at some point, I'm sure, in the future. Uh, within the next year and a half as well, I'd say. <laughs> G spot. Not. And sitting next to you is Dr. Moto. Good morning. It's great to be back. Uh, Moto, um, we've done lots of shows together uh, in the past. Uh, you've taken hiatus because you've gone into. Uh, private practice you're doing a phd you're doing lots of teaching you're a hard man to track down lost my life i'm trying yeah, to get it back trying to get it back well you're <laughs> back this Sunday back morning. on radiotherapy it's great <laughs> <laughs> now your phd happens to be in a brand spanking new area called transcranial magnetic stimulation just tell us what that is all about absolute pleasure so transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS for short, is a technique that's actually been around for about 30 years, just over 30 years, mm. and um, had its first publication um, reporting its efficacy in treating depression over 20 years ago. Wow. Okay. But as we know, things in clinical medicine trickle slowly, and mm. you know, in its first iteration, it wasn't um, necessarily uh, finessed and there were a lot of concerns about its safety. There were a lot of concerns about whether it's black magic or a hoax at all. Um, long story short, um, in the last two decades, there have been multiple uh, studies, um, what we call uh, sham-controlled, um, double-blinded, randomised trials. So mm-hmm. um, these studies um, involve hundreds of patients with depression, um, they don't know whether they're getting the real treatment or fake treatment. And the fake TMS treatments are pretty effective. They make the same sound and make similar sensations. Mm-hmm. So, what so is it, it's I mean, what's quite it? effective blinding. So this TMS thing, this, it's a procedure where you put a magnet on a head. Yes, yeah. that's correct. <laughs> just to um, keep it done for me. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I, need to, I need simple. Speaking um, just uh, to its... Um, uh, progress and development in a more abbreviated version. Um, you know, in the last few years, it's um, approved uh, for use in depression in, for, by most uh, health insurers in the United States, in Holland, in Japan. Um, it's in the NICE guidelines, etc. The NICE guidelines is the United Kingdom um, consortium of um, uh, guidelines uh, that... Um, you know, approve or recommend or do not recommend certain Would, treatments. Wouldn't medicine. you have loved to, So NICE is an acronym that stands for National Something Something Something. Yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't you have loved to have been the person that... They're sitting around and just saying, what are we going to call these guidelines? I reckon let's call them the NICE guidelines. That's right. <laughs> what a great idea. So Certainly very well named. I wish TMS had a nice and sexy name like that. You know, <laughs> need to, you know like... Um, you know, um, shark power or something. Like something <laughs> snappy. We can brain, you know, we can brainstorm, brainstorm yeah. the show today. Yeah. Um, but TMS is good, isn't it? It's a, it's a TLA. It's a three-letter abbreviation. And in medicine, you've got to have lots of TLAs. So TMS works. So t- tell us what it actually. I mean, tell us what it looks like when somebody mm. comes in for TMS. I mean, wh- what happens? So TMS uh, refers to a technique where a machine passes um, an ele- electrical current through a magnetic coil. Mm. Um, and uh, using laws of uh, electromagnetic induction, which is a mm-hmm. physics um, principle um, that uh, Michael Faraday came up with in 1831, so dating back even longer, mm-hmm. it basically suggests that um, when there is a magnetic field um, yeah. that is in flux um, and next to it there's a conducting circuit, it can, the, the electrical energy can jump from circuit one to circuit two all right, without any conductive material in between. Right. So if you apply this to the human head, 
you yeah. have a magnet that's uh, circuit one yeah. and then circuit two is your brain oh, the brain yeah. is made up of 100 billion neurons and neurons are effectively little uh, connectivity cells, uh, electrically oh, connected yeah. cells, yeah. right? Each neuron forms about two to 300 connections, sometimes thousands of connections with other neurons. Yeah. Um, so the brain is very much a very complicated electrochemical organ, yeah. right? Um, but in order to affect it using electrical energy, traditionally we've had to pass electricity directly into it. Yeah. But with electromagnetic induction, you can do that by jumping from the outside of the brain to the inside of the brain, and it goes through scalp and hair and um, skull, um, bone, which is not conductive. So it's considered a non-invasive way of electrically stimulating the brain. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, Dr. Moto, I find that um, when I talk about TMS, one of the most common misconceptions is that it's confused with electroconvulsive therapy, ECT. Can you comment on that? Absolutely. So ECT has been around for uh, just over 80 uh-huh. years, um, and it was the only brain stimulation technique that we had. Um, so when TMS came onto the scene, it was um, very easy for mm. people to think this is the new kind of ECT. It's uh, doing the same thing as ECT, but um, they're in fact absolute chalk and cheese. So with, with ECT, uh, usually there is a cerebral seizure involved, but in TMS there's no seizure. Is it the, the person is fully conscious, fully awake, can talk to you? Yes, so in TMS, uh, no seizure is involved, so therefore you don't need anaesthesia. If anything, if we do... A TMS machine can induce a seizure. Right. um, And uh, done incorrectly, it does run the risk of inducing Mm -hmm. a seizure. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, at the Alfred, on the team that I work at, you know, we've had in excess of 2,000 people who have had courses of TMS. We've never had, touch wood, never had a seizure, but there certainly have been um, services in which seizures were induced during clinical practice and we've had to troubleshoot. Mm-hmm. So are there a group of patients out there that are getting both TMS and ECT? That's a really good question. And no, is the short answer. It's never been studied. Uh, and you'd think, you know, if there was a bit of a push-pull or, a, you know, double whammy or, a, you know, com- a, a synergistic therapeutic effect, uh, it might make both treatment potentially more effective than mm. one treatment alone. But that's a great question. It's never been done. It's easy to do, but it's never been done. So is the idea that you um, stimulate the inside of your head with something outside of your head, there's no, uh, um, there's, there's, there's no actual direct stimulation, there's no wires or anything, and the next, I guess, logical leap is that by stimulating the inside of your head, something good happens. Yeah, that's the um, simple version of putting yeah. it. So um, when the TMS machine through the coil emits a electromagnetic pulse it creates a little targeted electrical field in the neuron or the cluster of brain cells mm. that lie just under um, the coil and uh, the electrical field will uh, sorry uh, what we call depolarize the neuron so mm. makes the uh, neuron jump into action or oh, turns it on turns it on right. and uh, as I mentioned earlier uh, neurons are Um, inextricably connected from one to another and the idea is we can uh, stimulate one cluster of neurons in order to uh, stimulate the neurons that are connected within the chain or circuits of neurons. How do you know which neurons to stimulate? So in uh, TMS in clinical practice at the moment we stimulate a part of the brain, take a deep breath, (gasps) called the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex. Oh the DLPC. (laughs) That's right. Deal. Um, so it basically just translates to the front of the brain, um, a bit to the side and a bit to the back. It's <laughs> the, the English version of the DLPFC. How, how, and, did, how did you figure out, though, to, I mean, why they're not the back of the head? I mean, how did you figure out there? So when, first, when TMS was first being considered for treating depression, um, uh, this was occurring at a time in the late 80s, early 90s, when, um, if anything, radiological techniques became more advanced. So it's got nothing to do with neurology or psychiatry. If anything, it's the radiologists, right, or the uh, neurologists in, uh, who have an interest in neuroimaging, right, um, 
that were able to do more advanced scans that hitherto we hadn't been able to do. So things like um, nuclear imaging studies, mm-hmm. PET scans and mm-hmm. SPECT scans, and also MRIs became more readily available yeah. and slightly higher definitions. This is going back to the late 80s, early 90s, right? So for the first time, we have been able to look at the brain, whereas prior to that, using X-rays and CT scans... Um, we, we just weren't able to get that amount of detail. So these scans showed us um, for people with depression, particularly chronic depression, there are areas of the brain that appear to be underactive oh. and some parts of the brain that were overactive relative to normal populations. Oh. And the prefrontal cortex, particularly the back and side aspects, yeah. the dorsolateral aspects was one of those regions that were quite consistently quite consistently showing up to be underactive so the idea came to um, a uh, neuroimaging researcher neurologist psychiatrist um, by the name of mark george to say okay so we've got this technique that can non-invasively and safely stimulate targeted parts of the brain called tms yeah why don't we target the part of the brain that's underactive? Mm. And that's how TMS in depression was born. Wow, that is awesome. fascinating. Man. So, so I guess it wasn't a serendipitous discovery then, or was it? was it? I mean, I guess when you're doing functional imaging of the brain, you can see one part of the brain is underactive, and then I guess it's kind of more... You're thinking of a logical leap of how to stimulate it. So I guess it's not so serendipitous because most, most of the big discoveries in psychiatry have been serendipitous, I guess. I actually had the great pleasure of uh, talking to Mark George about this. Yeah. Um, and oh. in his mind, it wasn't so serendipitous because oh. at the earliest stage of his career as a neurologist psychiatrist, he was doing research in neuroimaging, <clears throat> right? So, you know, A and B sort of led to C. But, <laughs> yes. but as with all good science, there is always a serendipitous element elements yeah. to it so um, i mentioned uh tms and depression has been around for over 20 years but the machine was first engineered over 30 years ago there was a one decade gap okay oh. between the machine being conceptualized oh. and then it being used into some clinical uh therapeutic um, mode so the machine was first engineered by um, um somebody called anthony barker who was an engineer at the university of sheffield Nothing to do with medicine, right? But he knew, like most people, knew about um, the law of electromagnetic induction, and he wanted to make this machine that can study the human brain without directly applying electricity, which is what we're talking about. So, and um, Tony Barker and his team put together this machine um, and uh, lent it to their university's physiology department just to study the motor cortex, the part of the brain that controls motor movements, right? It was intended as a physiological study tool, never as a therapeutic tool, right? And the story goes, at a conference in London, Tony Barker and Mark George met in the corridor Mark George heard Tony talking about this machine and he goes, have you ever thought about using this in depression? And Tony, of course, said, well, no, I have not. (laughs) So there's the serendipitous element. Man, that is an amazing story. I also have had the great pleasure of talking to Tony Barker about this. And um, he um, said he made it a conscious, he made a conscious decision to never patent this machine. And patent this technology because he wanted to see other people, such as Mark George and the TMS machine manufacturers, to take this technology and see how much it can blossom. Whereas if it was patented, it might just you know be in a, <laughs> a lab somewhere in a lab somewhere in Sheffield, uh, never being used. I'm feeling very warm and fuzzy, um, Doctor Murray. <laughs> this is an amazing story, none of which or very little of which I've heard before. We've just got to cut to some sponsorship announcements, but uh, we will continue the story of TMS and also what it's used for today, and much more of the practicalities um, around that. So. Stick with us. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 FM in Melbourne, Australia. Um, you are listening to... Guess what radio station you're listening to? Uh, have, a, have a guess. It's Triple R, of course, and the show is uh, Radio Therapy. Um, in the studio, you've got uh, me, Dr. Malpractice, Dr. Moto, telling us about TMS, Dr. G-Spot, and almost Dr. Neonatal. Moto... Um, we were just talking about the history of TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation. Tell us about what's happening today here in Melbourne. 
Well, um, in the last five to ten years, uh, probably closer to five, um, the number of TMS services in Melbourne grew from one to about seven now. Um, there are um, multiple services around Melbourne, um, uh, large private uh, hospitals, um, clinics um, that offer um, this treatment. So there are seven uh, services offering? There, thereabouts. Um, now, surely there must have been a load of research showing that it does work. Tell us how it works, what it works for, and compare it to other types of treatment for whatever disorder we're talking about. I'll start by talking about what it does to the brain. Okay. All right. So uh, earlier on I talked about how it creates these little targeted electrical fields yep. in the brain. And with repeated pulses or repeated stimulation, um, it shows that it affects the way that the neurons behave. It makes them a little bit more excitable and it also increases uh, metabolism in certain brain circuits and brain cells. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, and in uh, clinical trials, we find that um, patients do res their depressive symptoms do respond to this treatment. Um, and there are a couple of ways you can talk about this. One is in sham controlled trials, and one is in real world sort of open label studies where the patients know what they're getting. They're not blinded to whether they're getting real or fake treatment. Um, and in these real world studies, and some of these have uh, uh, participant numbers up to 300 or 1,000 patients. Mm. Um, and the response rates are in the vicinity of about 50%. So that means that in 50% of people, their depression gets better, right? And how does that compare to, say, antidepressants or talking therapy? Yeah, so uh, we know that in antidepressants, the response rate's probably closer to about um, 30% in mm. the first-line um, antidepressant uh, treatments. Now, when it comes to uh, studies that blind the participants mm -hmm. and the uh, people, administrators of treatment, um, this is where things get a little bit more interesting. So... Mm. Um, in uh, TMS-blinded uh, clinical trials, mm -hmm. um, people getting real treatment have a four times fourfold increase of their depression getting better than people getting placebo. Right. Right. Um, and in antidepressant studies, it's usually twice. Mm -hmm. Really? Mm -hmm. Twice. So, so in, in these large-scale... Um, antidepressant study. So the, the landmark study that a lot of psychiatrists are aware of is a psychiatrist um, published by Cipriani mm -hmm. last year mm -hmm. um, and it showed that um, you know across the thousands of studies that they uh, analysed mm -hmm. um, that uh, real antidepressant treatment has um, double the chances of your depression getting better than if you were given placebo. Antidepressants compared to placebo. That's correct. And TMS compared to antidepressants, you're saying? Is uh, uh, TMS compared to antidepressants, uh, sorry, TMS compared to placebo is about four times. Yeah. And antidepressants compared to placebo is about twice. Right. Can you therefore extrapolate and say TMS to antidepressants is twice? I wouldn't say so because, you know, you, um, you're there, you're comparing different study methodologies and different sample sizes, different okay. statistical techniques. Um, and I didn't consciously evade that question, but the fact of the matter is there haven't been that many studies looking at comparing TMS with antidepressants. And so you're talking about TMS, and how many treatments do people need? If you take us through the practicalities, how many do they need and how long does it take? So standard course of treatment is over four to six weeks with daily treatments. Mm -hmm. So it is quite a significant time investment. Mm -hmm. What's the uh, response from the patients when you say, I'm about to put a very large magnet on your head to help you mm. help with your depression? Good question. The <laughs> magnets themselves aren't actually that big. <laughs> so that's the first thing. It's not like wearing a helmet like Magneto in X-Men. It's a magnet that's probably smaller than an A5 piece of paper. Uh, and, um, you know, I've been working in TMS for about six, seven years now. And I have to say, in, in my career in psychiatry, I have not come across another treatment that has had 
as much consumer uptake as TMS. Hmm, really? A lot of uh, my patients or patients that I um, have um, interacted with, um, they have reservations about electroconvulsive therapy, antidepressant treatments, even some psychotherapies. Mm. You know, they sure. will rule it out as that's too hard or that won't work. But yeah. um, quite consistently, um, people love TMS. They love the idea of something new, something that won't give them side effects. Oh, so very, very briefly, uh, Moto, what are the side of, poten- potential side effects of TMS? It's very well tolerated. Uh, some people can get a bit of a headache and get a bit lightheaded. Um, if done incorrectly, it can cause seizures. So that's yep. the main side effect. Yep. And uh, rarely, uh, we also see um, people might get a little bit too anti-depressed and become a little bit manic. Right. So that's obviously concerning as well. And if people want to find out more about TMS, what should they do? Who should they speak to? Where should they go? The um, Australian and New Zealand College of uh, Psychiatrists um, have um, published a position statement about TMS um, and uh, there are also um, training programs that are coming up about that uh, are out there about TMS as well. If I'm, if I'm somebody who is depressed or I know somebody who's depressed and I want to find out more, is there some other... Pl- I mean, would the average sort of general practitioner know where to refer to or should they... Can you just Google TMS? I mean, what's, what's, what's a great first place to go for a consumer... That's, that's a great question. Um, I think in terms of freely available um, patient information, the University of New South Wales or okay. um, the, the Black Dog Institute okay. have got a pretty succinct and unbiased um, information about TMS. Okay. It's a good point. So, good place uh, to start. Uh, Univers- University of New South Wales, Black Dog Institute, TMS. Yeah. And for people not in Sydney, ultimately they probably should speak to a TMS psychiatrist. Which they would find through their GP? Yes. Um, so, you know, it refers to the Alfred, um, um, Epworth Healthcare um, and several of the other um, large private hospital networks oh. have um, TMS. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr Moto, for coming in and having a chat with us. I learnt a lot this morning. Very welcome. Okay, cheers. Three triple R. You are listening to Radiotherapy with Dr. Mel Practice, almost Dr. Neo Natal, and um, Dr. G Spot. And uh, we'd like to say a big shout out to our regular co host, EpiPen. Mm. We hope you're going really well and can't wait to have you back. Dr. Mel needs some wrangling. We really need you. <laughs> I miss you, Epi. You can tell the, the show today has been a bit all over the place. That's because you're not here. Come back soon. Um, uh, we've got an old friend uh, back in the studio right now, and that is Dr. Spock. Spock, thanks for coming in. Pleasure. Nice to be here. Um, you're usually on. Um on uh, Doolittle Show, aren't you? I've been on Doolittle Show. I've been on with Panel Beater and others, you know, a few different shows over time. Now you've uh, ascended to the lofty heights uh, of the uh, Dr. Mel practice. I have. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. G Show. Um, so when you told me about this idea of volunteerism, I, I actually had no idea what it was. Can you, can you fill us in? Well, it's interesting because actually Panel Beater is doing his PhD on this subject. But... Mm. How about what, that? Yeah, this is um, it's a growing trend in tourism that uh, what that people will actually be set up to go on a trip and to uh, visit a local school or an orphanage, and that will be part of the the trip. And of course, this, this has been going on for a long time. There are also um, people who go and work in orphanages, work in schools, school groups that go, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, there are also um, medical students, of course, who go on medical electives, and that's been happening for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but it's a growing trend, and what, what's happened is that um, it, there, there are a number of sort of industry has been, industries have been spawned from this practice of volunteerism, such that there are orphanages that are set up specifically for volunteers to go and work in. Um, and for you know they attract donors and they are f- volunteers are often fee paying and uh, and so there are a number of orphanages and schools and other things that have been set up specifically for this purpose. Do you know when you, just as you were saying fee paying, we've got a, a couple of friends with kids who have done this and uh, they uh, had dinners and events to pay for their fees mm-hmm. to go to these what I thought were really. Um, great ideas you know to go to places to help other kids well and they might be they might and in often 
often they are great things. People, there's a great cultural exchange and there's a, a, a lot that can be learned in both directions. But what has happened is that there are some orphanages that have been set up specifically for this purpose and in many cases they're shams. Um, oh, actually, fair income. Yeah, yeah. well, the, actually the first thing that, uh, the first anecdote that I heard about this um, was from a colleague of mine who runs the medical student elective program at Wellington University Mm -hmm. and one of her medical students a few years ago did an elective at a dementia unit in Peru and she uh, was loving this, Uh, she was really learning a lot about dementia and it was in a little village uh, outside of a big town and one day she forgot her bag she'd gone back to the town to where she was staying and she'd forgotten her bag at the dementia unit so she went back on the bus to get it and the place was uh there was no one there and you are the whole thing was a sham they set up this dementia unit for the specific purpose of fee-paying medical students to come and do their electives there and so she became acutely aware of this the the person rang my friend who runs the elective program and now they've got a code of conduct around this code of ethics around medical electives uh and uh and a number of medical schools are realizing it's a big issue and then with the orphanages thing it's become apparent that maybe as many as 80 percent of kids who are in, in orphanages in some of these countries like cambodia and thailand are not in fact orphans they've either been um cajoled the parents have been cajoled and giving up their kids to put them in the orphanages to, for so that the you know the orphan orphanages can get money from the fee-paying donors and from the volunteers who are coming um and in some cases they sell their children to the orphanages Mm. Wow! so it's a it is a it's a terrible situation that's uh that's occurred so you're going over there as a volunteer to do good and you think you're doing good and um you know why shouldn't you and it's a sham. Yeah, yeah, um, quite possibly. Quite I mean, possibly I'm, not you know, I, yeah. I think you know there are there are stories around schools where people and some you know I, I also have friends whose kids have gone over and helped build a school yeah. or you know build a house or something or other. I've heard of these what I thought were apocryphal stories of the, the houses being knocked over for the next group to come in and build <laughs> it again, but evidently some of these stories actually have a basis in truth. So I, I guess the point is that there is a consequence that a lot of people hadn't thought of and we need to you know there needs to be a lot of work done to improve the code of ethics around this to improve the whole situation for the orphans and and the people the the local people in these countries Uh, and also for the the, you know people who are very well-meaning who are going over there um, who who think they're doing good in inverted commas you know so how does the average person know if where they're going is legitimate or not well, that's, that's, that is difficult, but there are a number of organisations now that have sprung up to try to have a register of uh, orphanages that are accredited and there are a number of NGOs. I mean, it's, a, it's often by, you know, it's a voluntary thing, but they can register for accreditation with, for example, DFAT has now, a, a, you can, various NGOs can be accredited and orphanages overseas can be accredited with DFAT and you can go to the DFAT website and there are links to... NGOs that are uh, approved. Legitimate. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And with medical student electives, a number of universities now are approving certain places for electives. They, they're now doing a bit more homework than they used to. And, uh, and a friend of mine um, in Canberra has written a paper last year about sort of the rules and regulations around medical student electives. And, and a number, there's a lot of work being done in that space. The British Medical Association has got a, a now a sort of a, an ethics toolkit, they call it, and it gives uh, medical students some advice about how to choose an appropriate place to do their elective and, and so on. Actually, we've got a medical student with us now. So, Neonatal, have you done an elective? No, I'm doing one. In... Sorry, I'm doing one in uh, December. And uh, do you mind saying what you're doing? Uh, Alice Springs Hospital. Right, okay, so, so that's fairly legitimate. So we'd, we'd hope so. <laughs> in fact, some of our colleagues have actually worked there, so yeah. that, that's a dinkum uh, place, obviously. But um, were you aware of this thing as volunteerism? Uh, I was aware of the idea of volunteerism, but I'd never heard of the idea that certain places were set up for specifically to attract these medical students and uh, these you know, good do- people who are thinking that they're doing a good job. And, and, and does your university have some sort of protocol when it comes to, like, uh, when you want to say, oh, look, you say, I want to go to place X, do they say approved, not approved? Uh, yes, there is an approval process, but I 
think it's fairly loose. You're allowed to organize your own, yeah. um, own ones, and it's there is a list of suggested ones. Yeah. But you're more than welcome to go outside of that suggested list. Right. And it, there are plenty of organizations who will set up a medical elective for you. Uh, and people have gone through these organisations and saying, you know, I want to go do it in South America, and they'll produce a list that they uh, think are appropriate. So, but but do you know? Because uh, um, my son is now a young doctor, but he, he some of his friends went on their electives through one or other of those agencies, which have all, again an, an agency that's been set up uh, set up with the express purpose of making money out of medical student electives, really. Mm-hmm. And some of them went to places where they were basically having a good time in Tanzania or wherever it might be with without necessarily no emphasis on uh, what they were learning from mm. the whole experience and and the other concern of course with some medical student electives is that there's this notion that the medical students are ac- actually going there to to help uh, rather than a, an appreciation that they're going to get something out of it it's not really to to help in a in a, any real sense. Well, it's sort of a two-way street, no? That you, you, you used a bit for your skills, but you're there to learn mm. and to bring that knowledge back to uh, your place of employment and uh, for your career, basically, to yeah. make you a better doctor here in Australia. Yeah, well, yeah. we hope so. We yeah. hope so. I mean, um, you know, I was speaking to Panel Beater about the fact that a lot of uh, medical students now and, and young doctors put sort of a line on their CV always that they've done an elective here or they've mm. set up an orphanage there and worked in an orphanage or whatever it might be. And, you know, there is a concern, and, and it's no disrespect to neonatal at all, and my son did an elective in Uganda himself, but right. um, th- these are sometimes traded on as a, you know, it's put on the CV and traded on as a, a, a meritous thing. Mm. I'm so glad I'm speaking to you today because my daughter wants to do that in her gap year, and I'm just thinking, gee, I really need to check out where she wants to go. And so the DFAT well, website seems yeah, to be the place. So DFAT's effort. good. Yeah. There are, so there are a couple of things specifically around orphanages. Uh, J.K. Rowling, who wrote Harry Potter, yeah. set up an organisation called Lumos, and and that's all around trying to empower local communities to avoid children being taken from those communities and put yeah. into orphanages to keep kids. I mean, in some cases, of course, the the parents uh, they've got their parents, but they can't afford to keep their child as it were but a lot of the work that Lumos is doing is trying to empower uh, through local agencies community supports and so on there's also an organization rethink orphanages that panel beat is involved with that is also doing work in this space as well um so i'm surprised i haven't heard of this because i'm like i'm a very skeptical person Mm. um you know i'm always sort of challenging ideas and i just i just bought this whole thing hollis balls and thought great this is i i didn't even enter my mind that Mm. people could be so duplicitous and do stuff like this why is it not spoken of more why look i i don't know why it's not spoken of more i guess a number of people feel that i mean they are very well-meaning people who are going or sending their children off on these programs Um, who, who genuinely and 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 there are a number of good programs. Uh, let, let's not forget there are some really good programs. Yeah. There are some uh, organisations that desperately need people to come and volunteer. Yeah. And so you know, I think that overrides perhaps, and all of the positives have overridden some of the uh. the uh, you know some of the negative press about about them. And I guess you wouldn't want to do harm to those good okay. organisations by selling them with the reputations of the bad ones. Yeah. Do we know anything about the people who are setting up these sham orphanages yeah, and, and their kind of motivations? Uh, look, I, I must admit, I don't. Um, I mean, I've, I've been reading a lot around this area, but um, I, I think the motivations might be reasonably clear that it's money is the major mm. motivator. Um, unfortunately, you know, that there is a huge impact on, regardless of all this sort of stuff, there's a huge impact on a on a local population when it becomes found as a tourist destination and, mm. and all of all of us want to go and That's, visit it. And, yeah, uh, I wonder if it speaks to the, de- the desperation of these yeah. people going, mm. you know, this is a way to make money out of rich Westerners and we are in a terrible state mm. here. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that's the case. And, um, there, you know, there's a huge number of slaves in, in most of these countries, people who are, were, you know, beyond, um, you know, way below the minimum... Uh, living standard and and uh, and uh, so there is a desperation, no doubt. Are there some uh, destinations more than others where the, you've got to be really, really careful? I mean, you mentioned Uganda. I've heard of a couple of kids going to Uganda. I think Rwanda as well. Mm. Yeah. Um, well, I th- in 
they're sort of particular. The ones that have been particularly of concern have been in our region, Cambodia and Thailand, oh, okay. and, and there have been a number of orphanages. Uh, as I say, particularly in those two countries that have uh, been outed as uh, having been set up as complete shams. Um, but uh, Lumos uh, is doing a lot of work in a number of countries, a lot of it in Africa, uh, and I, I, I don't think it's unique to any particular country. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I just, I'm just thinking this is just such a, a, a story that needs to be told. Um, and, I'm, again, I'm surprised I haven't heard about it. Like, I could just see a, a good weekend feature article about an investigative journalist going to one of these places to try and sort of to, to raise awareness about it because... You know, I, I think it does a lot. Medical students need to do an elective. This is one of the sort of six-week blocks you have to do. Is that right? So for some unis, that's correct. Yeah. But then for other unis, they uh, suggest it as an additional thing. Yeah. So for my university, I'm doing it in a month during my holidays. Oh, right. Okay. Um, just to get a bit more experience with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, patients. But I think that um, a lot of... Like, I certainly wasn't aware that clinics were being set up for the purpose of making money and i think mm. that a lot of other students wouldn't be and there's probably a, a very big uh, need for awareness to be raised on that yeah yeah i mean i was involved with medical education a lot at universities and again this is the first time i've heard about it so i guess why i'm so surprised but i mean one of the i mean just to talk more broadly about medical students going overseas it's it's so important because you can become very parochial about your practice of medicine i mean if you learn medicine like i learned it say at one hospital for your entire career then you just think that's the way you treat pneumonia or that's the way you treat dementia yeah and it wasn't until i went to hospitals outside of australia I thought, wow there are actually other ways of doing it which are just as good sometimes a whole lot better and you really need that cross-pollination of ideas. And, it, you know, whether it comes, whether you go to New York or whether you go to, um, you know, the north of Israel or whether you go to Thailand, or it doesn't really matter as long as it's a legitimate place. You, mm. can, you can get lots of ideas that, you know, and we always need these new ideas too. It's not just about technology. There are so many systems ideas that you can get from other places. Mm. Well, so it seems to me that they're just... What needs to happen is that medical schools need to be aware of these issues, that as I think they are increasingly becoming, and have clear guidelines, good preparation for the students around what they might see and how they might respond to those things, discussions yeah. during and after the the electives or after the volunteer programs, whatever it might be, to so that people are actually critically thinking about what they're seeing and, and what they're experiencing. Yeah, it's not just go off and do it and come back yeah. and we'll get on with the course. Yeah, that's so true. Thanks so much, Dr Spock, for, for, for raising the awareness. That is really interesting and it's actually going to change the way I'm going to do something today. I'm going to sit down with my daughter and I'm going to look at this sort of stuff. That is really very powerful. Thanks for coming in. Uh, thank you also to uh, Dr G-Spot. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great show. Um, thank you for organising me in uh, EpiPen's absence. I try. You do try. Uh, <laughs> thank you difficult. also to future Dr Neonatal. You have been listening to Radiotherapy and just on a very, very quick note, we spoke with uh, Professor Felicity Baker about dementia and her music project i saw one of the best plays ever called last words um by joseph sherman on at la mama i think it's still on uh, um disclosure of interest um joseph's a good friend of mine but it is really the most standout play and it talks about dementia and the impact on people on families and, and and geographical changes it's just a fantastic place so if you can go get out to see that You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.